This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue for me to explore my curiosity through combos with leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Kyle Kowalski, an ex-marketing executive and founder of Slow, where Kyle synthesizes lifelong learning that catalyzes human development. We talk about meaning crises, psychological development, ikigai, the birth lottery, agency, and much more. Please enjoy. My background, professional background, is in marketing. So I worked in the marketing and advertising industry for 10 years. Um, and I kind of stumbled into that as a profession in the first place. So I actually went, um, well, through high school, I was actually focused on graphic design. My entire dad's side of the family, um, my dad's an industrial designer, but my whole dad's side of the family is in some type of graphic design, tons of cousins in graphic design. My best friend growing up is now a creative director. Um, so that was kind of my world growing up. My my grandma on my dad's side was a watercolor artist. I have aunts that are watercolor artists. So literally that was kind of like the, you know, the water that I was swimming in growing up was all things kind of design. However, when I was in high school, I was up until two or 3 AM doing art projects. And I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to be a sustainable life moving forward. Once I get to college, I can't be, you know, staying up all night doing art projects. Uh, so somehow uh, that kind of transitioned into marketing. I, I don't have a conscious, even if I reflect on it, I don't really have a conscious, you know, recollection of saying, oh yeah, marketing is what I want to do. I think it was more of probably a process of elimination thing <laughs> of, uh, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Okay. How about, you know, business administration and marketing and things like that are kind of a catch-all. So maybe I'll just do that and see where it goes. Um, so that's, that kind of sets the ground for, you know, at least one of the reasons why I think it was easier for me to quit my career when that time came was I don't even really know how I got into the industry in the first place. <laughs> so um, over the course of a decade in marketing, I worked at four different companies, three for anyone who knows the marketing and advertising world, three on the agency side, one on the client side. Um, and most of my background was in digital marketing. So that's kind of how I started. And then by the tail end of it, I had ended up on the client side and I was leading uh, brand strategy and marketing for a global apparel company. And that's really where the story kind of starts from a slow perspective is up until that point, And I started at that company, my final job in my career, I guess, uh, in mid 2014. So up until that point, 2007 to 2014, I had just, you know, lived through kind of all of the normal stuff, hadn't questioned anything in the system. Um, hadn't realized my own socialization and conditioning, everything was just playing out completely unquestioned. And then when I was in that final job, my boss actually got let go, uh, I guess maybe about six months, um, after I started and the president of the company said, okay, you're now doing all of your job and all of her job <laughs> and good luck. We're, we're backfilling the position, uh, but good luck in the meantime. Well, anyway, this is now beginning of 2015. Um, it took them six months to backfill the position. And those entire six months, I was working 60 to 80 hour plus weeks every single week, nonstop. Um, and that's not uncommon in the marketing world to have these ebbs and flows of high, high hour weeks. But, um, but this was different because this was nonstop for six months straight. 
And I kind of just, you know, up, up to that point, I kind of had always been one of those people that could just knock it out and do it. And, 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 you know, there was nothing too big. Um, you know, I'd just like those art projects in high school, you know, I would stay up, I would stay up as late as it took, uh, to do the work. And then, um, I actually had a client in one of my prior jobs who called me a marketing robot and unbreakable, <laughs> which at the time I took as a source of pride. I was like, yeah, throw anything at me. Um, I will handle it. No big deal. Um, but finally it did break me. Um, and this was now late 2015 where I had what I consider a self-diagnosed existential crisis. And I've, I've obviously reflected on this a lot over the years. Um, later this year, it will be the eight-year anniversary of that. 2015 doesn't sound like that, that long ago, but then once you do the math, it's like, oh, okay, that's about to be eight years ago. Um, but uh, what happened was essentially what I think at least was the, the long hours finally caught up to me. You could call it burnout. You could call it being a busyaholic, workaholic. Um, all of those things I think applied. Um, but the main thing for me, I think, was that I did not find purpose in the work itself, which is, which is ironic given the situation that I was in because the job, the apparel company that I was working for was over 100 years old. And they were in the midst of a brand reinvention. And meanwhile, I'm in the midst of an existential crisis. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny how life works out and plays out like that, where, you know, I'm getting paid to reinvent this brand, but I have no idea who I even am. So you're now in late 2015. And what I vividly remember was, you know, my day-to-day -day life was go to work, come home, probably not work out, eat dinner with my wife, and then she would go to bed and I would get back online and I would work from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. basically every night. And I had to do some weekend work and things like that, you know, and that would add up to the 80-hour weeks and sometimes even more. Uh, but what I vividly remember was one night after this just typical normal routine, I was just staring at the ceiling of our bedroom and could not fall asleep. And it was like 2 or 3 a.m., just staring at the ceiling, could not fall asleep. And that's kind of when all the questions started of like, who am I? What am I doing with my life? Am I really here to sell people more uh, $40 jeans that they don't need? Um, you know, what is my purpose? So all of those uh, intrinsic questions of kind of like that self-inquiry um, thing from Ramana Maharshi where, you know, who am I? Um, that's when all of those questions really started for me. And since then, it's just been a ongoing journey of trying to figure that out, trying to figure out how and why to live. Um, and a lot of things have happened in between there, but I ended up working in my career for another two and a half years after that crisis. And believe it or not, those years were actually rougher than the crisis itself. The crisis itself lasted about six weeks, although you can't put a debt, you can't put an end on a crisis really, but it lasted about like the acute portion of it lasted about six weeks. The entire following year, all my free time was spent searching for purpose. Um, if you would have seen my office wall at home at the time, I had that whiteboard paint up on the walls and all four walls were covered in, you know, trying to get to know myself and what is my purpose. I actually had the Ikigai diagram up on one of those walls. I've never, I haven't shared those pictures publicly, but I probably will at some point. Um, but those were the initial stages and this was all of 2016 and all my free time outside of work was trying to figure this stuff out for myself. Why do you think it took you another two and a half years after having that initial crisis to finally exit the corporate world and, and start, and we haven't got into slow, but we will in a second, but finally start slow. 
Um, it sounds like it was it was visceral, it was intense, but you still needed to let things play out a little bit longer before you made the switch. Why? Yeah. So the the acute portion of the crisis, I think, was an acute dose of cognitive dissonance of realizing, and maybe it wasn't, but um, I don't know. It, it was this kind of immediate realization in the crisis of the way that I'm living is not purposeful, but I didn't have any of the answers in terms of, well, what is purposeful? What does purpose mean to me? What, uh, what is meaning to me? Um, like all of the, all of the answers I had, I had the start of the questions, but I didn't have any of the answers about my life or life in general. So the following year and really two and a half years was what I would consider like an increasing boiling point of increasing cognitive dissonance where, I mean, this is how I spent all my free time basically <laughs> was trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and so you can imagine at this point, the day-to-day -day life is do your normal nine to five thing, come home, eat dinner probably not work out <laughs> and then, uh, and then dive into all this stuff and trying to figure this stuff out. And the more I learned about myself and the more I learned about life, I had this increasing cognitive dissonance of all the stuff I was learning versus how I was still living. And there was a huge disconnect between those two. Like my, my mind was in a state by early 2018, uh, about two years later, um, where I, I literally was like, I can't, I, I can't even keep showing up to this job. Like it was, it was literally killing me inside to keep showing up to something that I just could not find purposeful. So if you could see my Google search history during that time, I mean, anything you could imagine I had done a Google search for. Um, but that was just kind of my natural response was that this is a problem and I need to figure out my problem kind of thing. But it wasn't until years later, really in the last maybe one to two years where I started realizing, oh, I was questioning everything about life and my life and everything like that, but I didn't question my own mind that allowed me to respond to the crisis the way that I did. And that's where things I feel like have gotten really interesting for me lately is like, I didn't choose that mind that I had in the crisis to be able to respond to the crisis productively versus for instance, uh, you know, someone who ends up in a deep depression or you know, contemplate suicide or something like that. Um, the, the, I didn't have to struggle with those elements of it, but I never questioned until recently why that was, um, which I think is kind of a fascinating topic to get even deeper is, you know, uh, the crisis itself was interesting and set me on this path, but then analyzing it more, um, as to why I could respond the way I did is, is equally fascinating. But also to no fault of your own, right? You didn't know what you didn't know. You didn't have those tools such that you uh, could identify the the source of your issues and kind of uh, analyze it, do that introspection. It wasn't until the years of that Google search history later that you were able to reflect on that in the way you have more recently. Um, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. I think that's a, a problem a lot of a lot of people deal with today is they have that similar sense of dissonance. This is a conversation you and I had. To, we had a condensed version of this conversation on Twitter a month or two ago because I'm going through a similar thing where I, I think there's a disconnect between the things I'm doing in my quote unquote nine to five and the things I feel drawn to, to do. And I think that's a, a classic conflict for people, but very few have the means 
of investigating that or, or the desire, frankly, um, of, of analyzing that thoroughly such that they come to this point, to this revelation. Uh, and I think that maybe leads us to slow um, because in effect, that is what you're doing through this platform is uh, you're doing a process of self-inquiry, but then also making your findings public. Can you talk more about slow and how you see that being uh, more consistent with the way in which you want to be spending your time in life. Yeah. And, uh, to kind of give some background context on this, when I, when I quit my career, I actually had two projects, uh, entrepreneurial projects that I wanted to pursue. Um, and this kind of ties back to the beginning. I think I've always had this entrepreneurial dream, um, from as long, for as long as I can remember, I know for a fact that I started working on a funny enough, a clothing brand or a lifestyle apparel brand back in 2009. And over the course of that decade, while I was actually employed, um, I got three trademarks approved. I had an entire website built on Shopify. I had a hundred products concepted, um, and I had that graphic design background, but I wasn't a designer by trade, you know, so I didn't have, because I didn't go to school to do it and I hadn't learned, um, all of the hard skills of design in my free time. I didn't have what it took to, you know, keep that going and, even though when, so when I quit my career, I thought I was going to divide my days up between that and I was going to run that and sell graphic tees and, you know, whatever, things like that. But luckily, and this is another synchronicity thing of just how life plays out. My last job, actual paying job was at a clothing company. And I saw the dark side of the fashion industry and how dirty it is and everything else. And so I lost the love for that, the love that I thought I had for it. Um, and so I thought I was going to spend my days doing this you know, clothing brand project and then slow. But very quickly, I realized that that was completely unrealistic. There's no way I could run these two things at the same time. And so I, I put that entire clothing brand project that I've been working on for the better part of a decade on the back burner because I was more interested in slow um, and I thought the world needed it more. Um, and so I kind of just went all in once I realized, I mean, I, I, I had to have realized that in the first couple of weeks of, of self-employment of I can't run these two things. Um, but, but that was kind of an interesting real realization because even if I had been running the clothing project thing, I realized, oh, well then I'm still going to have to spend all my free time doing all of this, you know, self-inquiry stuff and learning about life and learning about myself and, and everything else. And that's just going to double my efforts and I'm not going to have enough time in the day to do both. So anyway, that's kind of some interesting background that most people don't know in terms of how I ended up going all in on slow in the first place. But, um, I guess through trying to figure out purpose and, um, and the process that I used to do that, I, I realized that in order for this to be a complete hero's journey or for this to actually lead to self-actualization or anything else that I had to share what I was learning, because if I was just learning all this stuff on my own and not sharing it anywhere, then it's all just up here and in my head and, and yeah, that'll impact my day-to-day day-to-day -day life and the people that I interact with and things like that, but it won't go beyond that. So I realized that this needed to be a bigger thing than just what I was learning myself. Maybe other people were going through similar things, um, not to mention the entrepreneurial side. So I kind of combined all that stuff together and that's what became slow. And for the first two years of slow, I didn't have any paid products on the site or anything like that. It was purely just learning and sharing. And that was it. And in order to enable you to spend two years on this without making a dime, uh, you had to completely redesign your lifestyle around 
intentional living and in pursuit of purpose. Can you talk more about, and this is actually, as listeners will see as we go through this conversation, uh, the kind of steps or sequence in which you outline information on slow, obviously mimics your own uh, path in life. And so that first step was this intentional living piece. Can you talk more about how you redesigned your lifestyle and particularly your uh, finances in order to enable you to spend more time on this um, and get to the place you are now? Yeah. So I, I had never heard of intentional living as far as, at least as I am consciously aware of until my existential crisis. That's when I came across concepts like slow living and simple living and voluntary simplicity and minimalism and downshifting and decluttering. Um, and more recently digital minimalism and all of those types of things. I had no idea. Cause again, I hadn't questioned anything in the system uh, that I was living in for my first 30 years. So I thought everybody, you know, did the lifestyle inflation thing. I thought everybody got the job, got the better job, switched to a higher paying job, got the house, got the, the bigger house, got the car, got the sports car, you know, that whole, that whole hedonic adaptation, hedonic treadmill thing. I thought that was just the norm and that everybody did that. Uh, and it wasn't until I discovered all the intentional living concepts that I was like, oh, there are people intentionally living intentionally. <laughs> and I had no idea that that was a thing. Um, so when I initially discovered it, I saw it as a, a means of escaping the, the life that I had created for myself. You know, if I could, if I could get my finances down to a certain point, then maybe I could escape this purposeless career that I was in. So for me, it started as an escape. Uh, it's obviously evolved uh, from that since then, but that's always kind of interesting to think about. And I think that's probably like we talked about the cognitive dissonance piece of, yeah, this seems to be like common theme of, you know, people are working in one job or career, but their passions or purpose are actually elsewhere. And that leads to that cognitive dissonance. But slow is named slow uh, because I discovered slow living during or, or slightly after my existential crisis. I like to say now that the S-L-O-W-W stands for an acronym of synthesizing lots of worldly wisdom. <laughs> but it didn't start out that way. It was, it was all about slow living and intentional living. Um, so in terms of how that kind of coordinates with uh, finances, everything, you realize that there's this contrarian path or alternate path um, aside from the lifestyle inflation path. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that I've never in my life been primarily motivated by money. Um, so even though I worked my way through uh, the marketing industry and got promotions and things like that and made more money, um, it was not a difficult decision for me from a financial perspective to leave the you know, six-figure salary behind because I've never been primarily motivated by money. I've been primarily motivated by doing good work, which is its own demon in a way, because I realized that uh, my self-worth was attached to my work. And I figured if I did really good work, then you know I would feel worth, worthwhile, worthy, my life would be worth it kind of thing. And then the money and the promotions and like all of that kind of stuff would come as byproducts. So that was kind of my filter on how I viewed everything. And so for me, it was always a matter of doing my best work because then I could feel best about myself. And that's kind of some shadow work stuff that I've had to go through in terms of trying to figure out, okay, or, or separating, you know, my own self and worth from my work. Uh, but we can circle back on that later. Um, but the money not being a primary motivator was important because I think a lot of people get stuck in their careers, even though they know they want to be doing something else because, to them, money is the primary motivator. That extrinsic motivator is the primary motivator for them. 
Um, so I, and again, you know, I didn't choose to, to not have money be a primary motivator in my mind. It's just kind of how it played out, but, um, but that was an important piece. And then, um, what I decided to do before I quit my career in those 2.5 years of cognitive dissonance was I was like, okay, I'm going to really, I know I don't want to be doing this anymore, but I'm going to really buckle down. I'm going to keep my job and I'm going to keep the salary and I'm going to fund the fund. And that meant I was going to use all of my day job income to fund the stuff I really wanted to be doing on the side. Um, and that didn't last too long. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it did allow me for those two plus years to build a little bit of what I call an entrepreneurial runway of savings um, to be able to pursue this uh, for a certain amount of time. Because I went into it knowing, um, I think I had seen some of this stuff from Naval Ravikant at some point. Um, and some other people in terms of, you know, entrepreneurship, it can take seven to 10 plus years before you're making a sustainable income or even replacing a decent portion of the income you had in a, in a typical career. Um, some people can do it in five years. Um, and then obviously it doesn't pan out for everybody, right? I mean, it, you, you can fail. There's no guarantee. Um, but I went into it with the mindset of, okay, this is going to be a long haul thing, uh, which I think helped because I didn't have any expectations of, okay, I'm going to start making money right away and it's all going to be easy and great. Um, so I think I had a realistic lens on, on that piece of it. And then I discovered the fire movement, <laughs> financial independence, retire early, um, which completely just like intentional living completely blew my mind in terms of what people were doing with money, how little some people were spending. Um, you know, you've got Jacob Lund Fisker from early retirement extreme who spends $7,000 a year total on everything. I think other people in the, in the fire community spend 25 to 40 grand a year for a household. Um, but the idea, you know, no matter how much you're spending, the idea is that it could be less. And uh, Vicki Robin, who co-authored Your Money or Your Life, talks about once you start uh, realizing how much you're spending, you naturally reduce your spending by 20 to 25% because that's how much unconsciousness has built up and lifestyle inflation and everything else. And sure enough, my wife and I actually compared our 2017 finances to our 2018 finances, and we cut our spending 30% year over year once we started getting intentional about it. So right in line kind of with, with what she said. So we're kind of a case study for that. But um, all these things, I think, kind of factored into kind of my relationship with money, my evolving relationship with money, um, how I've been able to reset my mindset on certain things. But the entrepreneurial math for me is if you don't need to, if you're not spending a lot of money, then you don't need to make a lot of money. And if you don't need to make a lot of money, then you are, you have a higher likelihood of making it doing whatever entrepreneurial endeavor you want to do. Um, so that, that's kind of been my mindset. Um, and, uh, it's my, my relationship with money has evolved over the years. Um, for instance, when I first started with slow, the re one of the reasons, and this is another kind of shadow thing that I had to examine, was one of the reasons I didn't initially launch any paid stuff was because I figured if I gave everything away for free, then nobody could criticize anything. Because I had what almost everybody has, which is imposter syndrome. You know, I had come from a decade in marketing. I was a marketer. Um, I wasn't an entrepreneur. That kind of mentality didn't, didn't initially sink in right away. Um, even when I launched paid products, they were super cheap <laughs> because I was like, okay, if it's not free, it's going to be cheap. And then it took me even longer to right size things with kind of like the market and feedback from a number of people who said, Hey, this is way too cheap. Um, but, um, but the money piece is a big one for a lot of people. And I think it's an evolving journey for all of us.
I think money as a construct, and I, I mean, I've known this for a while, but I had kind of an acute realization recently that just because money is a, a currency, it's a proxy for everything else. We tend to think in terms of money and instead of thinking about the things we actually want. Um, and so everybody is, is always saying, I want money. I want money, but doesn't ask themselves, why do I want this thing? What am I trying to exchange it for? And is there a path for me to actually go and get the thing more directly that I want? Um, and it seems like effectively that's, you figured that out and you said, I want a more intentional lifestyle so that I have the freedom to pursue my interest and, uh, explore, you know, my, my own psychology and higher states of consciousness, consciousness and what will you, um, part of this journey or, or importantly, this journey wasn't solo, uh, you are married and I'm curious to hear what the conversation was like with your wife as you were and and this wasn't a a single kind of inflection point it was a multi-year journey um but the the point at which you decided first uh i want to have a much more intentional lifestyle and i want to cut back on our expenses and secondly when you finally said okay i'm done with my job i'm going all in on slow what was that conversation like and and do you think the uh the fact that Many people have dependents, have you know pre-existing obligations, is a, a serious blocker to them doing something like this sooner. Yeah, I think uh, it, it has been interesting and it has evolved because um, she she will happily admit um, if she were here in the room too, she would she would say, yeah, I was worried about you during your existential crisis. Again, not from really like the deep depression thing or, or anything like that, but more along the lines of you know we had been married. Well, we will have been married for 12 years this year. So I guess in 2000, late 2015, during my crisis, it would have been about four years into marriage. Um, she was worried about me during that time because she says, because she had never seen me like that before. So that was eye-opening, not just for me, but for her as well in terms of, okay, something's different, something's going on. Um, but she was right there with me. Um, the, the whole way and, and has been the whole way of uh, this entire journey. Um, and I think that's really important. There's a concept called transformative learning um, where they talk about the importance of having at least one other person, whether that's a spouse or partner or close friend or whoever it may be um, to be able to share this stuff with and have dialogue with and bounce things off of and things like that. And, and she was that person for me um, and still is that person for me. So uh, she was, she's obviously a, a critical part of the support system for all of this. Um, so she, she kind of witnessed everything through the crisis. I think it helps um, that she had her own crisis in a way. Hers was more extrinsic when she had hers. So two years after mine, she had hers. I call mine an ex- extrinsic crisis. I call hers an, uh, sorry, I call mine an intrinsic crisis. I call hers an extrinsic crisis because my questions were more about who am I? What's my purpose? Like, kind of going in, whereas hers were more of like, what's the universe? What is all like, what's the nature of reality? Like all, all this stuff kind of external to you, um, in terms of those types of questions. So they were a little bit different there, but, um, but I think it helps that she had her own version of a crisis because then she has that context as well. Um, the, the quitting your career thing is not an easy decision. Even once it's clear and obvious, it's still not easy. Um, I, I had applied even, you know, in those years of cognitive dissonance, even in the months leading up to me quitting my career, I had applied to other jobs in turn. And I thought I could just, um, 
I thought I could just leave this job and go, you know, start fresh at a new job and that it would be different. And then I just realized it'd be the same thing, same thing, different company. Um, and luckily I actually got rejected from, from the last job that I applied for. The only two jobs I've been rejected from are the first job I ever applied for, which was a research assistant. And it's kind of funny that that's kind of what I do now, but I got rejected from that, which is what put me in the marketing path. Um, ended up, I, my first job out of college was a account assistant account executive at a digital marketing agency. And then, um, my last job, you'll, you'll laugh when you hear the job title, thinking of what I do with slow compared to this, but keep in mind, I was coming from, I was the director of brand marketing for a clothing brand and I had applied for director of luxury watches at Garmin <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, uh, for whatever reason, I just got a rejection email without a phone interview or in-person interview or anything. And that was like kind of like the final straw of like, well, uh, I can't think of any other jobs that I want. I don't see anything else available. Like this is kind of it. So it kind of, it was good in a way because it backed me into a corner with no plan B or anything else of like, I'm dying inside of this job. I've reached the boiling point. I have no other job prospects. I, I've always wanted to do this entrepreneurial thing. She had seen over those two and a half years, you know, how bad it got, um, not just during the crisis itself, but over those two and a half years, it got progressively worse, especially at the end. And it's, and I think that kind of gave her the, the context of, okay, yeah, you, you gotta, I at least need to get the entrepreneurial bug out of my system. I at least need to try it and fail. Um, and get it out of my system. And if I've got to go back to work, fine, but like, at least let me give it a shot and, and see what happens. And, and then she was finally on board with that. As I'm listening to this, I'm making mental notes of all the similarities between you're, you're a few years older than me, but, uh, as we were discussing before the episode started, we're having a similar existential realization or event around same time in our lives. And yet as I'm processing them, I'm thinking that no matter the no matter the external events or or other people's experience that I can I can see and recognize truth and value in, I still have to directly experience this thing for myself. I have to go through my own path. In your own journey, to what degree did uh, reading other people's accounts of a similar experience help you or accelerate you versus? Uh, as evidenced by your two and a half years after having that initial existential crisis, you were still working. To what extent do other people's opinions and accounts help you versus you just got to experience the thing yourself and it's it's got to run its course? You know what? Interestingly, back when I had my existential crisis, I actually did this recently. I, I recently Googled existential crisis and the amount of content that's available now is exponentially more than what was available when I had mine. Like <laughs> there was, there was a, I'll, I'll never forget. There was a Google result in the first page back when I had mine in, in late 2015, that was, do cats have existential crises? <laughs> and so there wasn't, there weren't a lot of pointers toward, you know, people that had gone through this before and what to do, um, you know, like a, like a guide or anything else, the Wikipedia page, I actually used the uh, Wayback Machine recently and looked at the Wikipedia page for existential crisis. And again, same thing. It's exponentially longer now than it was back when I had mine. Um, there just wasn't a lot of information available back then. And maybe this is actually trending in a good direction. You know, it's on one hand, it's it's 
it's a bummer that everybody has to kind of go through this and that more people seem to be going through it. But on the plus side, life just makes so much more sense and um, is you just have such a perspective reset and newfound perspective on life after you go through it um, that I would highly recommend it to everybody, even though it's, it's tough in the midst, midst of it. Um, but in terms of kind of, you know, other exemplars or examples or case studies or inspirational people that, that had gone through it, I couldn't find a lot. Um, which I guess is, is one of the reasons why I feel like I've had to live and learn the hard way for a lot of these things is, it's just kind of me stumbling through it and, and trying to figure things out. You said that you didn't find a lot of information around existential crises or, or these kind of related matters online at the time, but now it seems like, uh, that there's been an explosion of these kinds of, um, content and blogs. Do you feel like more people are having this realization than in the past or, and they're embracing it more, or is it really just a matter of kind of the ubiquitousness of the information, uh, the way in which we talk more publicly about things? I'm trying to, to figure out if there's been kind of a societal or cultural shift here, um, or if it's just the access to information that's improved, but the, the kind of latent desire was always there. Yeah, it's probably a combination. I think it's a great question. I think it's probably a combination. Um, if I think about some things like, for instance, like John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis uh, YouTube series, I think there's a, a reason kind of like in the cultural zeitgeist right now why people are searching for meaning, why people feel like they don't have it or they don't have purpose and they're, and they're looking for it. I mean, there's a reason why that, that podcast series kind of blew up. Um, so I think there is something kind of going on right now. Um, you also had from a corporate perspective, the phase of all the, all the companies and brands going through what I call purpose washing, which is basically like when Tom's shoes and Patagonia and everything else, uh, started blowing up. Um, they had purpose as part of the brand itself. Whereas all these other companies I call purpose washing because they're just trying to bolt on some external purpose uh, or cause marketing or whatever it may be. But I think you have all of these brands now and companies who are reacting to the reality that consumers want to buy stuff from brands that have purpose and employees want to work at a company where they feel like it's purposeful. The, either, like their individual job is purposeful and the brand itself is, is purposeful. So I think you have this kind of, you know, confluence of all these factors working at the same time, but it does seem like there's something in the zeitgeist route right now in terms of, you know, total percentage, if this is more than in the past or things like that, I'm not sure. Um, but even if the percentage is the same as it was in the past, the total volume of people on the planet is more than it's ever been. And the, like you said, the access to information is, is greater than it's ever been. So I think you've got like the perfect storm of all these things happening at the same time. What's your hope? Or this is a conversation you and I have had in the past over DMs, but also uh, through Twitter more publicly. What is your hope for humanity as it increases or, or expectation around the increase in awareness and, um, you know, kind of transcending our, our natural operating system? Are you highly optimistic about that? Uh, or... Or are you skeptical and you think we're, we're pretty hardwired? It's very difficult for us to transcend this natural operating system. 
I would say I'm more optimistic than I feel like most of the people that I have conversations with about this topic. Um, I do think that things are progressing. Um, if you look at any of the psychological development theories, um, whether it's individual or collective, um, it does seem like things, if, and especially if you take the long haul of human history and where things have started, how they've evolved, how humanity has evolved, um, I think one of the things I always come back to is the book, The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant, um, where they talk about that humanity progresses by the raising of the social, they call it the social pedestal. Another way to think about this could be David Foster Wallace's This is Water. Like we're all swimming in this environmental water of our culture and the cultural zeitgeist and, and society and things like that. But when the water rises, you know, all, all boats rise kind of thing. So I think it's one of those things where uh, it's less of like, you're, you're not going to have too many individuals who are just kind of going it alone and, and, and just doing it themselves. Um, I actually think independence and self-created and things like that are, are misguided because we are a product of all these external forces outside of ourselves and everything's interconnected. Um, but those are kind of some of the things that I come back to in terms of, I think the society itself and culture itself, when the tide rises in terms of psychological development, that infuses kind of all of everybody all around. And it's, it's a slow rise though, right? It's not something that just happens overnight. Uh, but I am optimistic that it's happening. Um, and the way that I've approached it from my own journey and my own work is that I actually think transformative learning or adult learning um, leads or is a means to adult development or psychological development. So I've approached it from a learning perspective. Um, however, I haven't ruled out whatsoever that technology, psychedelics, um, other innovations or inventions, that those can't also be really critical aids um, as part of the cultural zeitgeist to bring people along. Um, and that psychological development happens as a byproduct of technology. Ken Wilber in his integral theory actually talks about how technology always runs ahead of culture and ends up shaping it. And, uh, I've, that's kind of stuck in my head too, in terms of like, okay, well, if the, if, if we're creating the technology, but then the technology creates us back and it's kind of this feedback loop of one thing shapes, the other shapes, the other shapes, the other, um, then you would hope that it progresses in a way where the tides kind of rise a little bit, rise a little bit, rise a little bit, rise a little bit. And of course you'll have some backtracks in there, but in the long haul, hopefully it's rising in the right direction. We started uh, several minutes ago talking about intentional living, and that's kind of the the first step in what you've identified as a four step uh, path in your own journey, um, and that's kind of the way the way all of the content is organized on Slow. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about those next three steps that you've identified, um, and kind of where you're at in your own journey. I think. Uh, maybe implicitly you're, you're always at the last step because that's the one you're documenting. Um, but, uh, would love to hear more about those last three steps and then where you're at in your current experience and, and where you see it heading from here. Yeah. So I actually didn't create those stages. I call them the slow stages. I actually didn't create them for at least a few years after I got started. So there were, I had a few years into my journey. There were probably a few hundred posts on the site at the time. And I am assuming that I did it because I was trying to figure out some type of organizing principle or framework in order to like, let's, let's say at the time there were 300 posts on the site or something. Um, 
I probably did it in, in the sense of, well, how do, if someone brand new comes to the site, how do they know what the site is about? They just see 300 posts. There's no, <laughs> there's no organization really, or anything else. How do I make sense of this? So I started reflecting on kind of the, the big steps that I felt like I had gone through, um, which started with intentional living. So I call, uh, actually we'll back up a second and say that, um, actually consider lifelong learning to be a support system for all of the stages. So that's kind of like this ground level foundation um, that is the start for everything. Um, so that's where all the questioning and searching and, and looking for answers, all of that kind of comes into play there. And then stage one was intentional living. We kind of covered that one. Stage two for me was really my 2016 and 2017, where I was deep into searching for life purpose. So I consider stage two to be that search for uh, if stage one in the intentional living thing I had mentioned was kind of an escape for me, how do I escape my current situation? Stage two is, well, even if you escape, what are you, what are you going to do next kind of thing? So stage two was figuring out life purpose. Um, and then that naturally led me into all of the questions in terms of what is purpose? When we say purpose, what is the concept of purpose? Where, where did that come from? How did it evolve to be something? How do we experience purpose? I actually watched a YouTube video, I think by Richard Dawkins on YouTube, um, called the purpose of purpose, which blew my mind at the time in terms of how humans ever kind of evolved to have purpose in the first place. Um, but, uh, that got me into the mind because that was again, kind of talking about how I naturally responded to my existential crisis, but didn't until years later question the mind that I had that allowed me to respond the way that I did. Well, I ended up finding purpose in 2016 or 17, but I didn't even question, well, what was purpose? <laughs> so once you get into all of those questions, you go deeper and deeper into the mind. And, and that's what I consider stage three, which I call mental mastery. Uh, but really it's just anything mind stuff, anything related to the mind, um, whether that's the brain itself, biology, psychology, um, anything mind, concepts, ideas, you name it. Uh, I kind of all consider that stage three stuff. And then um, eventually that seems to lead people into stage four, which I call um, timeless wisdom. So people call it spiritual growth. Um, although spiritual growth is kind of a misnomer because there's not really growing. It's more of a realizing. Um, so I've been calling it timeless wisdom more lately, but that's really what I would call quote unquote beyond mind. Um, so in terms of the progression it's kind of been, you know, a few years maybe, or a couple years in each one. Um, but they transcend and include, which is important because even though I'm more interested in the mind and, and beyond mind stuff now, I haven't left the intentional living or life purpose stuff behind. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy, um, where if you remove one of the base levels, then everything comes crashing down. Uh, there's actually a principle called holons and holarchy. Mm -hmm. Ken Will, this is part of Ken Wilber's integral theory. Um, I actually think Maslow's hierarchy should be redesigned to be called Maslow's holarchy of needs because they all build on each other. They all transcend the prior stage, but include it. Another phrase is development is envelopment. Um, so by, by being at slow stage three or four, it, that still includes, um, stages one and two. And in terms of where it's headed in the future, I have no idea <laughs> because, uh, when I initially created it, there were only the first three stages. I hadn't even realized the beyond mind stuff yet. Um, so I would, I would be hesitant to say that it ends at four. Um, I think that would be kind of a, 
uh, end of history fallacy or illusion to think that, okay, all the, all the learning and change and new perspective taking and all of that is finished at this moment kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. And it's one of those things where you can kind of only connect the dots looking back. Um, I could have never told you, you know, when I left my career, uh, I could never have given you the line that I say now in terms of my purpose is synthesizing lifelong learning that catalyzes human development. I didn't even have those words. I didn't even know what synthesizing was. <laughs> I didn't know what human development or psychological development was. So it's one of those things where it kind of unfolds. The more you get into it, the more it unfolds. And then you kind of look back on where you've been and you're able to connect some dots. Um, always have to be careful of narrative bias and you know all the other things where you can delude yourself. But um, but since my entire thing has been based on, uh, you know, the existential crisis was the spark, the last thing that I want to do is delude myself further. So I think that helps in terms of trying to give myself honest self-assessments of things, uh, where I'm at, what I need help with, trying to dissect, you know, every, every little thing about who I am and, uh, and know thyself better. You're always on the, the razor's edge of the, the path. You're always at the very end. Um, the the second step in that progression was around purpose um and one of the most common frameworks for understanding and kind of employing your purpose that are out there is guy um you wrote a uh a ebook i guess a, a mini book um on a updated version of ikigai that you felt like more accurately represented uh your purpose and how you employ that. Can you talk about first for, for those who aren't familiar, what is Ikigai? And then secondly, why did it need revising? What did you feel like was missing? Yeah. So Ikigai, it, for those who have heard of it, um, they've probably heard of it in the context of a four circle Venn diagram, uh, where these four different elements come together and at the very center is your Ikigai or your purpose. And those four elements are, what you love, uh, I believe the second one's what you're good at, uh, what the world needs and what you can be paid for, something along those lines. Um, and that's what I had hanging up, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, the podcast, that's what I had hanging up on my wall um, in late 2015 or 2016 when I was searching for purpose was that exact four circle Venn diagram. Um, but naturally, once I started investing it, investigating it, I went deep down the rabbit hole um, again, because re remember I was just looking for everything purpose related that I could get my hands on. Um, and once I started investigating it, I realized that the guy who created that four circle diagram, he didn't have any ill intentions or anything like that. And I actually think he's done the world a favor by getting the, even just the four circle meme into people's minds. But, uh, what he did was he took a, that four circle diagram, which was in Spanish and the center of it was an Ikigai. It actually said purpose. And he took that four circle diagram and then he actually had watched a TED talk by Dan Butner, who did all the blue zones work and talked about Ikigai in Japan because in Japan, Okinawa, I think is one of the blue zones. And he just put those two things together. He said, okay, I'm going to take this Ikigai concept. I'm going to take this purpose diagram and I'm going to put them together. And instead of it saying purpose in the middle, I'm going to have it say Ikigai. And then that went viral. And, and that's kind of what most people think is Ikigai. The problem with it is once you start investigating it, the Japanese concept of Ikigai really doesn't have anything to do with money. You can have, you can have more than one Ikigai. Your Ikigai can be unpaid. Um, there are all of these kind of misconceptions or misperceptions of the four circle diagram versus what Ikigai actually is in Japan. 
So I studied it um, as part of the stuff I was doing on and off for five years and ended up synthesizing everything into a single ebook. Um, but the ebook is really a guidebook and a workbook for people that outlines the exact process that I went through to find purpose. And the, it's still the process that I recommend to this day for anyone who's looking for purpose. Um, but one of the big things is the whole money factor of your purpose does not have to be a moneymaker. And so I redesigned the, the model and to be uh, called Ikigai 2.0. Um, I decided instead of naming it some brand new, you know, name, I figured, you know, that Ikigai name and meme is already out there. Let's just go with that. So I called it Ikigai 2.0. Um, but it redesigns the model to be more in line with the truth of Ikigai in terms of what it actually means in Japan. Um, and, and one of the factors is that money is not important to it. However, money can be an optional byproduct of you pursuing your purpose. Um, but it doesn't have to be. So that's one of the key differences, but I, re I redesigned it in the, the, uh, the circles in the diagram that I went with are, uh, what you love what you're passionate about. A lot of people think passion is a dirty word these days, but passion is the fuel for everything else. It's a, it's actually a critical component of purpose. Like if I wasn't passionate about what I do every day, it'd be hard to have the intrinsic motivation to show up and do it. Um, so what you love is the first one. Uh, how I might actually redesign the, the wording of this a little bit. I think right now it says what you're encoded for. I might even say what you're genetically encoded for, but I've learned so much in the years since that I wouldn't limit it to that anymore. I probably say more along the lines of like how you're wired, um, which takes into account nature and nurture. And then the third circle is um, what the world and or humanity needs. And so if you find the center of those, that's what I consider Ikigai 2.0. And then there, when you're actually doing that and living that, it creates kind of a virtuous flywheel effect where you're going around these circles, you love it. It's what you're wired to do. The world needs it kind of thing. And it's this just ongoing virtuous flywheel. And as a byproduct of that, you could make money from that depending on what your purpose is. Or if you have multiple purposes, maybe one of them does, but the other ones don't. Um, there are a lot of different ways to, to use the framework. What would you say is the key determinant for whether or not you should pursue something that aligns both your passion and making money. So in your, in your case, uh, you were fortunate, fortunate enough to say, this is my purpose and I'm going to try to find a way to make money out of it. Um, for many other people, it may just be impractical. There, there's just not a good way to make money. Um, you know, if, if I'm doing glass blowing or something and I live on a small Island somewhere, um, how do you figure out, how do you decide whether I can make money off of passion? And if I can't, how should I structure my life such, such that I can make space for both? Yeah. So there are a few factors in this, um, uh, like your glass blowing example. One example that I give in the uh, ebook, I believe is I'm passionate about music. Um, I've been listening to electronic dance music for 20 plus years. It's the longest relationship that I have with anything other than my family. <laughs> However, I don't know anything about music. I don't know how to produce music. I don't know. I literally am complete beginner's mind on anything related to music. So that's an example of a passion that I'm not necessarily wired for. Um, and so the way that the Ikigai 2.0 works is that each circle is a checks and balance on the prior one. And you kind of go in, an, in a specific order. So you have to be passionate about it first, but then if it's not what you're wired for, that kind of 
you know, scratches that checks and balance and rules that one out. Uh, another example that I give, like the graphic design example that, um, that I gave at the beginning of the podcast, I realized that, um, I don't think I'm, I'm really wired for that. Um, it, it gave me, uh, an eye for design. And like, I, I know enough about design to be dangerous. I used to say, I know enough of Photoshop to be dangerous, um, which isn't the case anymore, but, um, but ultimately it, it didn't pan out because I just don't think it was how I'm wired and I, I didn't love it enough kind of thing. So it, again, that kind of fails the, the whole, uh, flywheel circle of, of Ikigai 2.0. Uh, another one was I ran competitively in high school and got a scholarship to run cross country and track in college. And I ran for two years and then I realized that I just didn't love it anymore. And I, I actually competed with some people who went pro and running, um, who, uh, almost made like the Olympics, the Olympic teams and running, um, who were on my, it was only like a 14 person cross country team. Uh, but that's how good, you know, some of the people were on the team were, uh, how good they were. And I realized reflecting on that, that I, I was good, but I was not in this case, genetically encoded. You know, I literally, like, if you look at some of these guys, like their body structure, their, their VO two max, their lung capacity, like, you know, all these things, I just, and, and not only that, but I lost the love for it, you know, two years into college, it was more like a job. And if it's more like a job and you don't love it, then it's just not going to pan out for the long term, which is kind of a consistent theme. But yeah, I guess long story short, it's, it's, it's kind of all of these things together. And the reason Ikigai 2.0 goes in the order that it does is that it makes you find your purpose first. And then the money, uh, the optional money byproduct thing is something that you figure out from the purpose itself, but it goes in that order instead of putting money first and then trying to force fit purpose to it, it intentionally goes in a reverse order. Um, Maria Popova, who, uh, runs brain pickings, which is now called the marginalian says something like her work has always been personal development first, followed by business development as a byproduct. And I couldn't agree more with that where it's, it's, you know, figuring yourself out first and then figuring out the money piece as a byproduct of it. And if you end up going through the whole thing and you figure out that your primary purpose isn't going to be a moneymaker, that's totally fine. There are other options versus, you know, entrepreneurship or side hustles or, or, uh, you know, the gig economy or things like that. You can actually, once you have a better idea of your purpose, you can do what they call job crafting, which is, um, you actually, you either stay in your career, but you look for a different job. You stay at your existing company, but you look for a different role within that company you stay in your existing company and your existing job, but you craft it in a way that works better for you, that more aligns with your purpose. Um, so there are a number of different ways to make this model work for you in terms of um, the monetary side, even if your purpose isn't a primary moneymaker. I love the idea of prioritizing personal development and then having business development follow from that. That resonates. Um, one of the key components of uh, your, your modified Ikigai is this idea you touched on a couple of times, your wiring, which is a combination of nature and nurture, uh, your innate tendencies, but then also your conditioning and your environment. And there's a, a concept along these lines that you spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about called uh, the lottery birth ticket. I have a number of questions around this, but I want to start with giving you a chance to give an explanation of what it is 
and and what the implications are, why it's so it, you feel like it's such an important concept to understand. Yeah, I actually think it might be the biggest thing that I've discovered in this entire journey in terms of, um, you know, if you could put something on a billboard, what would it be kind of thing? It, it, it might be this for me. Um, because I think this is a critical component. One, I think this could actually help people in terms of psychological development. Um, but two, this leads directly to all of the questions in terms of social socialization and conditioning and why you are the way you are, um, why someone else is the way that they are. So it helps in, intrapersonally with yourself and interpersonally in terms of, of relationship with others. But the idea is that, um, you didn't choose to exist in the first place. Now there are going to be people who talk about, well, what about reincarnation and transmigration and things like that? I so far haven't seen any evidence for that based on my own personal lived experience. I don't remember being born by the way. Apparently there are some people who claim to remember being in the womb or being born or whatever else. But for the rest of us on average, the, the average person doesn't have their first memory until two to four years old. They actually call that childhood amnesia. Um, and for me, so, and this is kind of, as I'm talking out loud, this is kind of the process that I do with anything that I'm learning, right? I, I'm learning something, I'm, I'm testing it against my own lived experience. Um, if, it, if it aligns with my lived experience, it might give me words to articulate something that I couldn't articulate before, but kind of, you know, felt like I knew in a way, but couldn't say in words before. Um, that's when an insight aligns with, with what you already know tacitly, I guess. Or the things that I'm learning butt up against my lived experience and it is opposite or different in some way, shape, or form, in which case that is surprising or unexpected. Um, and that leads to, you know, a deeper dive down the rabbit hole of, well, why is that different? Um, is that how it is for other for most other people? Am I just this anomaly or vice versa? So you start investigating all these different things, but I'm kind of testing everything against my own lived experience. But um the idea boiled down is you didn't choose to exist. You didn't choose or control anything about your nature. So you didn't choose a cell, a single cell in your body, a neuron in your brain. You didn't choose your genetics. You didn't choose your sex, your biological sex, uh, your race, you know, all of those types of things. And then you didn't choose or control any of your nurture either. So not only once you're in the world, um, but once you're being nurtured, you didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your geographic location. You didn't choose your, uh, at least initial education that your parents gave you. And there's actually, um, some research on this, that if you're born into poverty or something, those children actually have a smaller vocabulary from their parents, which then impacts their educational opportunities and how well they do in school, which then impacts their job opportunities and the amount of money that they make and, you know, everything else. So it's kind of this ongoing downstream consequences and implications of all of these things that you didn't choose or control from your nature and nurture. And what I call the strangest thing. And what really got me questioning on this last year was the strangest thing to me is that, and once, and you can validate this for yourself, right? And anybody listening can validate for this for themselves. Like, do you remember being born? Did you choose any of your nature? Did you choose any of your nurture? Um, if you had traumatic experiences growing up, it's not like you, you know, intentionally chose to have a traumatic experience. Uh, but that changes things biologically in your brain. I just read the book Live Wired by David Eagleman. So that's very top of mind <laughs> right now. But, um, you know, there are all these biological correlates to things in psychology in terms of what's actually physically changing in the brain. Um, and a lot of things from childhood, I think people think you, 
you know, childhood is something in the past um, and it doesn't affect you as an adult. Uh, but the reality is that you as an adult is downstream of you as a child and the way that memory works um, it, from things based on neuroscience and things like that is that older memories are actually more solidified than newer memories. So just like learning, just like new learning is built on a foundation of prior learning, new memories built on a foundation of prior memory. Um, so it's not like you leave your childhood behind. It has lifelong consequences and implications. Um, and you can think through all these, all these things for yourself. And so I have, a, I have a post on the SLOW website where I dissected everything I could think of in terms of nature and nurture about myself. You know, I didn't choose to look like this. I didn't choose, you know, any of this stuff. And the strangest thing to me is that we, we were responsible for 0% of our nature and nurture. Yet at some point, whether it's, this is a natural biological evolutionary thing and or a cultural societal thing or what, or a mix of both. But at some point, it's kind of like a boiling of the frog of, you were 0% responsible. I think we can all agree on, or actually I've had some people who don't even agree on that stuff, but I think most of us would say, okay, I agree 0% responsible for that stuff that was super early in life. Um, I'm on board with that. But then at some point we assume 100% responsibility for this brain and mind that's, that was shaped by all the things we didn't choose or control. And so that dichotomy has been really fascinating to me in terms of and this gets into your sense of self, your identity, your ego, all of those types of things. Um, because the question is, you know, who are you really when you didn't choose any of that stuff? <laughs> but the paradox is that you can't realize this until you, you don't realize you have an identity until you already have one. You don't realize you're socializing and, and conditioning until you've already been socialized and conditioned. So from a timing perspective, you know, there's no way around any of this stuff. It's the order of events that have to happen. Um, if you if you didn't have any socialization or conditioning, you'd be a feral child. This is actually in the Live Wired book by David Eagleman too. So there's no getting around it. It's just that a lot of people don't seem to get to the point of questioning it and realizing it. Um, and and I think that's a key part of psychological development. Yeah. On one hand, I think it's a really important realization that. Uh, a surprising number of people don't have. Um, I think it engenders empathy uh, for yourself and for other people. Um, on the other hand, though, I, practically, like, what are the implications here? What, how should this make us think and and live differently, if at all? Yeah. So um, I've had I, I've had countless conversations about this topic, and then the natural next step, which is free will conversation on Twitter. Um, which has actually been really helpful to me because I have, I suffer from the curse of knowledge, uh, mm -hmm. thing where the curse of knowledge says, uh, once you learn something, you assume everybody else already knows it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my big, biggest weaknesses where I'll learn something and I'm like, oh yeah, it's common sense to everybody else. Like I, mm -hmm. it just assumed everybody knows it, whatever else, but through countless conversations on Twitter, I've realized that this is not how everybody sees the world. Um, and of course it isn't right. Because even me a year or two ago, didn't know any of this stuff, didn't realize any of this stuff, didn't have awareness of any of it. Um, but in terms of the implications, I actually read a really good book. I've only read part one of it, but it's called creating freedom by Raul Martinez. He has a great Ted talk. He actually has a lottery of birth, uh, documentary too. I actually think the Ted talk is a better version and more condensed version than the, than the documentary. But, um, 
he he's really what opened my eyes to a lot of this stuff. And in his part one of his book, he goes through a lot of the implications in terms of once you realize this stuff and his, the way that he realized it was he was walking home from school one day, I think when he was younger with a friend who was raised really religious and who, who, you know, had certainty in terms of this is how life is. I know because my religion tells me kind of thing, all of that type of stuff. Whereas he, I'm not sure if he wasn't raised religious at all, or if it just wasn't strictly enforced or strictly conditioned um, in him. But he had this aha moment when he was fairly young, I think, or maybe it was his teens. Uh, but he had this aha moment of, oh, if I had been born as my friend, I'd be saying exactly what he's saying. And if he were born as me, he would be saying what I'm saying. And if any of us were born as someone else, we would be able to see the world through their eyes. We'd be able to understand their experience, why they do what they do. Um, and once you kind of get all of that, that's what leads to your point of it's really unconditional and universal compassion and empathy in terms of putting your, I mean, in terms of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, this is kind of it. It's like until VR, or maybe something gets to the point where you can actually live in terms of someone else's experiences. This is kind of, you know, as deep as it gets, but in natural responses, you can't have hatred anymore because it just doesn't logically make sense. Um, it leads to compassion. And then everybody gets to the uh, ideas of, well, what about criminal justice system and criminals and whatever else? And the idea is that, of course, we still need to remove dangers from society, but it makes you question whether or not there should be ultimate blame placed on them for a brain and mind that they didn't choose. Um, the, that's like, it, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. Um, you can not blame the person, but still deal with the consequences of this person's a danger and therefore we need to, to remove them from society. It makes you question um, retrib retribution versus rehabilitation. So instead of like a punishment mindset, and the punishment mindset is because you're to blame, right? In the free will scenario, you did it. You're 100% responsible. You consciously chose to do it. It's your fault, no one else's fault. Um, that's where retribution and punishment make more sense versus once you start getting into biology and neuroscience and, and seeing some of this stuff, um, you start to realize that, oh, maybe rehabilitation to the extent that one can be re rehabilitated. Um, and this is where, again, some of the psychedelic stuff and research on that front come into play, because if you can have pro profound uh, biological changes in the brain, that affects the psychology then. So um, all of those kind of societal implications come into play, but I get a lot of people who come up with the false dichotomy of, you know, determinism versus free will. And, um, well, if there's no free will, then it would basically be like the purge and everyone would just, you know, use it as an excuse to do whatever they want. But the idea is that it's realizing all of this stuff isn't a belief that you hold in the level of your mind, right? It's not, it's not believing oh, there's no free will. I'm going to take that belief and now I'm going to act according to that belief. It's a realization and an understanding. And once you, uh, again, Raul Martinez says something along the lines of, and this is kind of how I define responsibility now, which is um, to acknowledge that we're not ultimately responsible is kind of the epitome of taking responsibility. And once we realize, once we realize the effect the world has had on us, we can then affect the world. So it's this idea of we need to acknowledge that we're not ultimately responsible and then we can take responsibility. Um, but uh, 
I, yeah, once, until someone realizes their socialization and conditioning, it's, it's tough. It's tough to have those conversations because they're just taking this stuff as ideas and beliefs and butting it, butting it up against other ideas and beliefs they already have. And then you're in a battle of confirmation bias and, and just ideas and mind stuff versus actual realizations and understanding and, um, more holistic perspective taking and things like that. But, um, and I think that's, that's yeah. the other implication of this realization. You focus mostly on the kind of external or interpersonal realization, which leads to empathy for others. There's also an intrapersonal implication, which is if I am, if I was largely, uh, not in control of the person I've become, I need to go and investigate those things and tease out what is actually quote unquote me versus was conditioned or uh, kind of out of out of my control. Um, but what you just alluded to can be a blocker to that if you were looking at that through a lens of existing ideologies or frameworks, it prevents you from even getting there. Um, I do want to take this conversation to the next step, which, is, which you already brushed up against, which is this question of, of free will or, or agency. What is your take on the degree to which we have agency and, and free will, and does it even matter at the end of the day? Yeah. So I'll start with the mattering perspective because that comes up a lot. And that was, that was my reaction, right? I mean, ask me two years ago and I'd say, well, what does it matter if we have free will or not? Because we're just doing what we're doing anyway, and it wouldn't change anything. That was, that was my perspective as of two years ago. Now I believe that it's critically important and it actually changes everything, <laughs> not only about ourselves and, and, and how we interact with ourselves and how we interact with others, but you know, how society is designed. So I think I recommend that everybody investigate it for themselves. Um, I've learned the hard way again, through countless conversations on Twitter of denying free will or saying there's no free will or anything like that. Uh, it's a very touchy subject for people. So instead of, you know, giving a, a definitive answer or a binary yes, no, or anything like that, um, I would just say that, you know, people investigate it for themselves for me. And, and the other thing is people think it's very limiting. If you don't have free will, then it's very limiting. Whereas I've found, I, I won't say there's no free will because I'll just let people investigate it for themselves, but I'll say I've, I've found the lack of my free will in terms of all these things I'm realizing and discovering, I found it liberating. So it's actually the opposite of limiting it's liberating. Um, and the idea again is that once you have awareness of something, it changes your relationship with what you're aware of. So once you're able to, uh, for instance, this is very clear. Once you're able to, uh, view your mind as an object, this gets into uh, subject object, uh, relationship, which is big in spirituality, but it's also, uh, big in psychology. Uh, Robert Keegan's theory of adult development is, is what really clicked for me last year um, in terms of how this works. But his idea is the, the subject of one stage of psychological development becomes the object of the subject at the next stage of development. That's kind of a mouthful, but the idea is that the clearest example I can give is that at one level of psycho psychological development, you think you are your mind, your thoughts are you. Um, if someone attacks your ideas, they're attacking you. You are synonymous with your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, everything else. And then in the next stage, I don't know if it's the, it, it, you know, s select any theory you like, but um, a progressive stage beyond that would be now you can take your mind, which you thought was you, but now you can take it as an object 
and see kind of whether they call it like construct aware or ego aware or being able to see your ego in real time as it's playing out, um, you know, able to catch yourself in terms of you're thinking a certain way, questioning now almost like a meta a meta cognition thing of uh, questioning why you're thinking that way, seeing your thoughts, witnessing your thoughts, observing your mind. Um, now you're at a stage where you as the subject are able to take your mind as an object. And this gets back into all the lottery of birth and socialization and conditioning stuff, because once you realize that stuff, you don't completely leave it behind, but you transcend, again, you transcend and include it. And by being aware of it, it changes your relationship with it. So for instance, I'm very aware I didn't pick my personality type. I didn't pick to have, you know, the work ethic that I have or the determination or discipline or grit or like all these other things that I have. Um, but I'm aware of them now and I can use them in a different way because my relationship with them can change based on being aware of it. Whereas before, if you're not even aware of it, then you can't have a relationship with it. So I all in all, I think it's a good thing. Is the, is the malleability of it through awareness, does that contradict uh, our lack of free will? Isn't that a case to the, the opposite? So... Again, I try to ground a lot of this stuff just in my personal lived experience. And I recently was thinking about, you know, if I reflect on my life pre-existential crisis, for instance, or yeah, so pre-existential crisis, this is back when I was in the system. Just if I look at that, I was basically executing my socialization and conditioning. I, I was not, I, I mean, looking at it now, I would say that's just, that was me as a product. I hadn't questioned anything, Right. So how could it be anything other than me just executing all of those factors? And, and there, it's an amalgamation of countless factors, right? I've just named a handful of them. Um, and we'll never be able to pinpoint every single one and put them in time and everything else. So it's obviously all this stuff is way more complex than we can put in words. But, um, but when I look back on that, I would say, you know, I have more, I feel like I have a sen more sense of agency now than I did then. So it's almost like a comparison thing. The, the sense of agency is greater now with increasing psychological development. That, that seems to be a factor because you're taking more and more holistic perspectives on things. Uh, you're able to view yourself not just as this like individual and everybody else is out there external and other. You now view yourself as you know part of the species and you can take a holistic perspective on life and things just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of like Ken Wilber talks about like egocentric to ethnocentric to world centric in terms of how your perspectives grow. That doesn't mean you leave again, doesn't mean you leave the egocentric ones behind necessarily it transcends and includes. Um, but uh, in terms of agency and there's also, I've actually been looking into this more because uh, I want to understand the evolutionary, how we got here evolutionarily from the sense of um, the sense of free will, the sense of agency, they also call it volition. Um, and so there's some, there actually is some research out there that people are doing in terms of, well, where did the sense of agency and volition come from? Why did we evolve to have it in the first place? Um, taking these different perspectives on it is interesting because a lot of times you can get stuck in your just single uh, subjective view on the world. And so looking at things from either a societal perspective or, um, a science perspective, almost like a third party viewing yourself. Um, all of those perspectives are interesting to take and give you, give you a, a new look on, on whatever you're studying. But, um, I'm not sure if I answered your question completely, but, uh, in terms of agency, I guess, 
I feel like I have, I have a greater sense of agency, but I also feel like I have a greater insight into all of the factors impinging on my agency. <laughs> so it's kind of a combination. So, so you don't think free will is binary. Either we have it or we don't. Um, it's, it, it seems like they're like almost if you picture a, a, you know, a slider on your phone, it's like you, you've got a little bit of wiggle room at the, the end of the spectrum. Is that a fair characterization? Because I'm still trying to reconcile the idea that if you are aware of your, your conditioning or your quote unquote lottery ticket, um, and you are able, the, the entire reason you're doing slow and kind of doing this introspective journey is because you believe to some extent that you as Kyle are malleable um, or else you wouldn't be doing it. And so I'm trying to reconcile those, those two ideas. Yeah. And as you can probably tell, this is kind of on the bleeding edge of uh, the stuff I've been learning about and thinking about really over the last year. And I, I would, you know, I humbly admit I don't have all the answers and I think it's, it's best for people to investigate it for themselves. Um, but, uh, I, and I don't know yet how to think about the sliding scale thing or free will as a spectrum or, um, or whatever else, because I feel like I have more agency now than I did in the past, but I still wouldn't call it free, if that makes sense. And a lot of people get hung up on this uh, determinism versus free will thing, which I consider a false dichotomy, because my understanding is that determinism will probably be proven false at some point. And even deterministic systems, from my entry-level understanding, is that even deterministic systems are unpredictable after a certain amount of time. So it's it's so that's why I consider the free will versus people think it's got to be free will or it's got to be determinism. Where I consider it a false dichotomy, it's probably not determinism, but you still don't have <laughs> complete free will. And of course you don't, right? Because again, if you didn't have any socialization or conditioning, you'd be that feral child. And there's so there's no way to bypass. Uh, all of that stuff that just has to happen to unpack a brain in the world through environmental experience. Um, so it's, it's much more nuanced than I feel like people give it credit for. Um, and I feel like, again, it's a, it's this weird paradox, but I feel like learning all of the limitations and lack of free will that you thought you had before is actually a liberating thing. But again, if people don't investigate it for themselves, that's where they get hung up because they're like, oh, so you don't believe in free will. And let me butt that up against the ideas in my head, which are that I have free will and therefore you're wrong and, and whatever. So it just becomes an idea game and a belief game versus a no, like do the deep investigation and like, like figure this stuff out, um, uh, you know, validate it for yourself kind of thing. But for me, it was a, a, a combination of three three big factors. I call them the holy shit moment for me. I have a, I have a premium post on the site about this, but the idea is that the first one is conceptual. The second one is experiential. And the third one is scientific. And when I realized that they were all saying the same thing, it was bigger than any epiphany or aha moment or insight I had ever had. And that's why I call it a holy shit moment. Um, but the idea is that you can do, for instance, Sam Harris's thought experiments on free will. That's a conceptual thought exercise. That's at the level of your mind. Uh, you can go through all this lottery of birth stuff, dissect. I recommend everybody dissect their own lottery of birth. Um, 
and realize all the things you did not choose or control about yourself. That's again, a conceptual exercise. You're thinking through those things. So that's the first one is conceptual. The second is experiential, which is you can glimpse this through meditation. People have uh, experiences of no self or subject object merging through meditation, but it's a temporary thing, but you can still glimpse it. Psychological development is another experiential thing. It's your lived experience of how you, have, of how you experience reality. Um, and again, this kind of goes through what we were talking about before in terms of once you're able to take your mind as an object, then you realize, oh, okay, I kind of I get it now. It makes sense. But as, as long as you're living on the level of I am my thoughts, it's, it's much more of a challenge. Um, so psychological development helps. And then the third piece of the experiential part would be um, enlightenment where subject and object just merge and you're in non-dual awareness um, and your sense of separate self dissolves and all of that. And then the third piece is scientific, which is um, the biology of behavior, Robert Sapolsky's work. Uh, he's a hard determinist, um, whereas I actually don't mess with any of the labels in terms of like um, compatibilism, incompatibilism, determinism, the state of the universe, like all that stuff is is so far outside the realm of things that I'm really looking at that it doesn't matter that much to me. Like Robert Sapolsky's book later this year will address quantum theory and quantum bubbling up and, you know, can quantum effects, you know, deep down actually have an impact on our level of how we live life. So all that kind of stuff. Um, but his book behave on the bio biology of behavior is fascinating and he's got a fascinating Ted talk as well. And then uh, all things neuroscience, um, I feel like are pointing in, in similar directions as biology. So when you take those three, conceptual, experiential, and scientific, they're all kind of pointing at the same, same stuff. So to me, that was an example of consilience, where consilience is when independent things kind of merge on a similar conclusion. Um, and they all happened for me around the same time. You know, I was doing, <laughs> I was looking at all this lottery of birth stuff. I had been going through my own psychological development. I had enough insight into biology and neuroscience. Um, uh, I don't consider myself enlightened. I actually don't do a lot of meditation either. Um, but then all the thought experiments and all the conceptual stuff too, it all just merged together. And it was like, oh, <laughs> these are all kind of pointing at the same exact thing. But again, it's, it's one of those things where I just recommend each person investigates it for themselves. Um, it's fascinating. I think it's well worth anyone's time and energy for those who are, are genuinely interested in it. And I think you'll find that it's not limiting. It's actually liberating. Um, I think that's a, an excellent stopping point. Um, and importantly, for the record, I, d I didn't uh, try to repeat that question to antagonize you. I think it is... <laughs> me attempting to work through that with you as well, because it's something that's on my mind and I, I don't have an answer to. Um, yeah. No, I hope it's there. a good example of, you know, I, it, it's a perfect example of, I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers figured out. I'm figuring this stuff out just like everybody else. Um, and this is kind of the bleeding edge of where I'm at. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised that all the things I just said, I think are just, you know, wrong in a year or two, <laughs> but that's kind of how it works. Right. Um, you know, you, you don't know until you're looking back on, on, on what you thought previously. So, um, so yeah, we'll have to do this maybe on like a recurring basis so I can point out all the ways I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually that, uh, that is maybe my final question. Although you, you only know your path in hindsight, you have 
a, a compass and intuition that's guiding you on the on this path. Where do you feel like it's taking you? What are you seeking? I think, and and maybe I'll project based on kind of the the four steps that you've already outlined. Um, it feels like it would culminate in either and and maybe someone of higher consciousness uh, would argue that this is a false dichotomy, but it would culminate in some kind of sense of unification with reality, with the universe uh, and or transcending the mind itself, which feels like uh, heavily related or intimately connected to this, the stage in your journey you're at currently, where do you feel like you're being taken? Yeah. In terms of what, what I'm seeking in, where I feel like I'm being taken, I guess from a seeking perspective, again, this whole thing started out with trying to escape, <laughs> trying to escape my career, uh, and finding life purpose. So that's what I was seeking initially. That's what got me started, um, seeking answers to all the questions that I had. Um, in terms of what I'm seeking now, I guess it's a little bit different because what I've learned is that everything you learn is interconnected with everything else. And so by pulling on one thread, you end up being led to another thread, to another thread, to another in this giant, you know, web or, or network of everything interconnected. And so now I feel like I'm more kind of going with the flow and letting my curiosity unfold a little bit more versus seeking anything in particular. I can't, I can't think of a specific thing right now in terms of, you know, escaping or finding purpose, a specific thing right now that I'm seeking. So it's more of like a following curiosity type of thing. Like I'm more interested, in like where does it, where does all this go? If I keep pulling on stuff, like what, uh, where does it go? Um, and then in terms of where it's headed, that's that's where you know I don't I just don't know. Um, like I said, I didn't I didn't initially have a stage four because I didn't even know there was a beyond mind type of thing. Um, if you look at psychological development theories or spirituality or anything like that, it seems to go towards some type of unitive stage or enlightenment or something like that, but. Um, at this point, I, <laughs> I'm not qualified to speak on those subjects because it's just not has, it hasn't been my lived experience yet. Um, so I guess, uh, I, all we can really do is just watch it unfold and, and life is just happening. I, it's funny too, because I had a post that I posted on the site like two or three years ago, one of my initial premium posts, I think about, uh, the question was, do you live life or does life live you? And this was pre me learning about any of the lottery or birth stuff, subject object relationship, enlightenment, free will. I hadn't learned about any of that stuff, but reading that post now is a completely different experience than when I actually wrote that post a couple of years ago. All of the stuff makes much more sense now, uh, than it did at that time. And that's kind of what I've seen as a recurring theme is that things aren't necessarily chronological or linear. Uh, coming across an idea might just plant a seed in your mind and that seed may never develop or it may germinate over years and before it blooms or blossoms. Um, and you just, you just don't know until it happens. Um, but, uh, yeah, in terms of does life, do you live life or does life live you? Uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought experiment and kind of plays into, into all the, the other topics we we're talking about. I think that's one of the central questions and ideas I'm dealing with at the moment. This uh, single term I keep coming back to is the is surrender, the idea of surrendering. Um, I, I mentioned this on a recent episode, but 
uh, Jed McKenna has this quote, release the tiller. Um, I, I visually see that as me sitting out in a small lifeboat out in the rocky seas, me thinking that I can control my own. This, this ties into a conversation about free will, but is maybe a, looking at it from a different angle. I see myself sitting out there in the lifeboat, rocky seas, thinking I control my destiny with this little boat and this little paddle. And I'm going to fight like hell to get where I want to go. But also I'm out in the middle of the water. Where am I going? Um, and I think maybe the more I, the more I agree to surrender or, or actively surrender in my life, it feels like the more life flows and is more natural and the more things come to me. But it's only possible to see that in hindsight. Um, it, it's very cliche to say, uh, you know, things always happen for a reason. Um, but maybe that, that bit of wisdom exists because there, there is truth in it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a very, uh, fundamental idea I'm wrestling with week in, week out. So that actually, it's funny you bring up the idea of rowing, um, because I just came across an old newsletter that I had done or something. And there was, uh, some example of Alan Watts talking about this exact thing that we're talking about. And he says, you're actually, it's something along the lines of, you're not actually like in the boat rowing kind of thing, thinking you're the rower and whatever else it's more like sailing and more like kind of going with the flow and letting, letting the wind kind of take you, um, and listening to life and, and things like that. So that was interesting. And then, um, if you don't mind, uh, on the topic of surrender, I'd love to wrap up with, uh, reading a quote, my favorite quote on surrender. Um, it's, it's a little, it's a little long, but it's worth it. It's, it's the best, uh, definition of surrender that I've ever come across. And it's from, uh, Michael Singer. All right, here we go. All right. So this is from Michael Singer describing what it's like to live from a place of surrender. So the rest of this is a quote. He says, if we pay attention, we will realize that every moment around us, there is a world that we do not create. That's been there for 13.8 billion years. And there are trillions of cells in your body that are doing what they're supposed to do. All of nature, everything. And you wake up and you realize I'm not doing any of this. I didn't make my body. I didn't make my mind think. I don't make my heart beat. I don't make my breath breathe, yet I have this notion that I have to make things happen. Yet all throughout the universe, things are happening everywhere, and I'm not doing them. So why exactly am I the one that's in charge of what's unfolding in front of me? And what you realize at some point is that you're not. That the moment in front of you that's unfolding is no different than all the zillions of other moments that aren't in front of you that are unfolding in accordance with the laws of the nature, the laws of creation. So you start to practice saying... I don't want to check inside of me first to see what I want and what I don't want. I want to pay attention to what the universe is creating in front of me, just like it's creating everywhere I'm not. And let me see how I can participate in that, be part of that, instead of interfering with it from my desires and my fears. That's living from a place of surrender. Beautiful. I think that's an yeah. excellent stopping place and culmination of this conversation. Um, and I, I think this won't be the last conversation you and I have on this podcast. So thank you so much um we also went 30 or 45 minutes over so really appreciate your extra time um thank you Kyle. yeah thanks for having me spencer let's do it again soon awesome